I'm excited for the word today. Uh, I do want to start uh, with us in prayer. Um, it is Father's Day, and um, uh, the church's relationship to these kind of holidays is always just complicated, um, these sort of manufactured American holidays. But um, I at least want to lead us in, in a little bit of prayer and then dive into our message. So uh, let's pray. God, um, I'm, I'm thankful for today. I'm thankful for a chance to gather with your church and worship. Um, and, and knowing that so much of the church is traveling today, and, um, and, and um, but yet uh, a, a day that's heavy for some, a day that's um, not even acknowledged for many, and um, yet uh, a day to reflect on you as a father. So gracious and loving God on this day, we gather to, to celebrate the gift that is fatherhood, reflect on, and, and, and that we could reflect on you as a father that you are a father of boundless love, compassion, guidance that surpasses any of our understanding of, this, of how things should be. You're a loving father who provides for the needs of your children, who protects, showers us with love. And God, even as we seek on a holiday to honor earthly fathers, whatever they may look like to us, Help us remember that you are the, the perfect, the truest example of a father. And may your fatherly presence bring healing, restoration, and strength to all who seek you. So in your holy name, God, we pray. Amen. So we are um, continuing and walking through a series where we walk through various psalms out of the book of psalms, uh, kind of arbitrarily picked. They're not necessarily like building upon each other. Um, and part of that is because of att attendances and, and things like that that we are struggling with uh, with volunteers today, but the fact that people are in and out all summer long. And so uh, to, to spend a series building upon sometimes gets a little bit more complicated to accomplish uh, as opposed to the Psalms, which tend to have one-off themes, one-off topics, one-off um, focuses. And so today we're going to be in Psalm 19, which is um, one of the more famous of the Psalms, um, or at least gets quoted quite a bit. So I'm going to read through Psalm 19. It's not super long. Uh, we've got 14 verses to read through, and then we'll, we'll dive in. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the ends of the, earth, of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever, and the rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even more fi much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. 
So I want to start with a question that has confounded people for years, and that is, what color is this dress? Ready? What color? Black, blue. Does anybody see gold and white? I'm a gold and white person. I know it's a minority uh, crowd that sees the gold and the white, but that's just what I see. But, but yes, all the various colors. So what about the sneaker? What color is the sneaker? Gray or pink? Sam, who sees pink? My pink. Am I the only pink? You see it, Brandon? Great. Uh, Grant sees it too. Uh, Andy, great. There's, yeah, I see pink when I see this shoe, but there's a bunch of debate. What about this purse? What color is this purse? Ooh, we got almost a universal white. Some people see blue when they see this thing. Um, and then, what's this last one? What color is that shirt and shoes? Gray, gray. <laughs> I'm a pink person again. I'm, I'm, yeah, it's, it's so funny because most of us would be like, I very clearly see pink or I very clearly see gray. I don't see how anybody else can see it any differently than you see it when you look at the picture. But it's just what we do. And people can see the same thing. People can look at the same thing around them and yet still come to a different conclusion as to what color it actually is or what it actually looks like. But at the end of the day, that doesn't change the color of the actual thing that we have taken a picture of, right? Like, even if we come to different conclusions, there is at some point an actual color to that dress and an actual color to that shoe and an actual color to, to the bag that is, is true of it. And I think the same is true sometimes for the world around us that we can look into the vastness of the galaxies, and yet many will come to different conclusions about it, about why it is and why it's there and what we should think about it. We can look into our world, into the beauty of creation and mountains and stuff like that, and yet still come to different conclusions. We can even look at the same book and open it up and yet still come to very different conclusions as to what it is and what does it say and why does it say the things it does. And the topic today has to deal with some of that, of how God reveals himself and, and what we are to think about that. How God reveals himself to creation, which is sort of the opening section, and how God reveals himself through his word, and then ultimately how God reveals himself even to our inner selves. Sort of the unspoken or soundless word of God, the spoken word of God, and then the searching word of God. This psalm happens to break down quite easily for a three-point sermon, so that's what we're gonna do. The soundless word of God. And so it opens saying, the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. So the psalmist just looks at the sky and it's like, this is God's poem. This is God's artwork. Day and night. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the ends of the earth. In them, he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a, it gets all poetic about the sun, like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the ends of the heavens and the circuit to them, end of them. There's nothing hidden from its heat. And so right away, there's the psalmist reflecting that there's some sort of proclamation. It, it even speaks of that, that there is no speech nor other words whose voice is not heard. There's, there's still some kind of proclamation that the natural world is participating in, that sort of non-verbal communication. It's speechless speech and wordless word. And we know how this works, even as humans. There's things like non-verbal communication. I think Ursula sings a whole song about it. But there's non-verbal communication that exists out there. And, and it's a good question, like why? Like if you go, I mean, growing up near a beach, you, you, you can often go to, to the beach and and sit there on the shoreline and, and sort of feel 
a certain sense of, of awe sometimes. Or you can go to the Rockies and stand there in front of those mountains and be like, just, just reflect on maybe your smallness or maybe just the beauty of those things. Go to the Grand Canyon, go see sequoias. There's all sorts of different things. Listen to birds. There's all sorts of different things that sometimes just cause us to just be awestruck, to just look at the grandeur and kind of feel something that we as humans just feel. Like at some point, the sun is just this giant ball of gas violently burning all the time. And yet we can sit here or even the psalmist, and poetically talk about, oh, the sun is like this bridegroom coming out of a chamber, like this strong man, and, and poetically reflect on a burning ball of gas because it can, it can move us. So why does a giant pile of rocks move us? Because <laughs> that's all a mountain is, it's just a very large pile of rocks. Why does it move us? And I think the psalmist is like, nature affects us like, like great art. That's what we're looking at. It can move you to tears or lift to your, um, uh, until you soar. That's what music and that's what artwork and story and literature, all those things have the ability to do, to, to stir our emotions. And because nature is, as the psalmist is reflecting on us, it's God's handiwork. It's God's artwork. It's like as you look to the mountains, when you were looking at a work of art in the creation of the world. It's as if all of creation is sitting there singing, we are not by accident. <laughs> this mountain peak was not an accident. This ocean was not an accident. But the product of an artistic vision for the world, design and imagination, and stars and seas and canyons and mountains are all speaking or singing. They're all communicating something to us. And even, even some of the most atheist people I know can still stand there in the beauty of the creation and still go, yeah, there's something awe-striking about this. I would say it's speaking to us. We're not random. We're not an accidental set of atoms. We're not made, uh, but we're made for a purpose. Uh, there's a meaning behind it all. Even Paul will reflect on this in Romans 1. It says, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So there's no place. There's no place in life that's not spoken out or speaking of God, that life is meaningful or people are important and there's a God behind it all. Um, physicist Charles Meisner says, um, he once commented on the notion of the grandeur of the heavens. He says, the design of the universe is very magnificent and should not be taken for granted. In fact, I believe that is why Einstein had so little use for organized religions, although he stu uh, struck me as basically a very religious man. Einstein must have looked at what, his what the preacher said about God and felt that they were blaspheming. He had seen more majesty than he had ever imagined in the creation of the universe and felt that the God they were talking about couldn't have been the real thing. My guess is that he simply felt that the churches had run, he had run across did not have a proper respect for the author of the universe. And, and the, the physicist thing, as, as, as Einstein looked into the universe, he saw some grandeur and majesty, and yet he would sometimes hear what was preached and it would be not reflecting on that beauty. And there are certain implications, I think, that play out here. The first is um, that I do not know of another view of reality 
that actually has a higher view of the natural world, the trees, the mountain, the seas, and environments. And here, here's why. Um, when you start dabbling in what Eastern philosophy teaches, whether it's Hinduism, or Buddhism, and things like that, um, they, they would actually say most of the natural world is illusion. It's not actually real. It's not actually true. It's, it's, it's an illusion of a greater reality. Or the secular world would come along and say most of what we have is just a culmination of the, the bigger fish eating the smaller fish. It's, you are here today because competition has led to this moment, and that's all we have. And that's, that's why the world is the way that it is. It's violent out there. <coughs> but Christianity, I would argue, humbles you before <coughs> your fellow works of art. Elizabeth Elliot um, has this, this sweet little moment where she talks about a clam. And, he, and she says, you know what? A clam glorifies God better than we do. And that should be humbling enough. But I think Psalm 19 is like that. It's like every beetle, every flower, every clam, because she would go on to say, is being everything that is created to be. Like a clam is created for a certain purpose and role. It's created to, to stick onto things, to filter things in the ocean, and it does those things, and it does those well. And it's what God created it to do and to be, and it does it. Now, you and I are created to do and to be certain things, and we don't, we don't do those things a lot of times. And so in front of us is most of creation is doing the things that God has created to be and, and glorifying God in those things. It's more spiritual than we are. Um, but what other view of reality would humble you to look at a tree, to look at a flower, to look at a clam and say, God created that to do exactly what that thing is doing. To live in balance with other great works of arts in such a way that that we free um, in such a way that, that we're free to be ourselves, to look at others, to, to glorify God, to sing with all your heart um, when they do that, to see people living into their, their wiring, to live into how God has made them to be. <clears throat> the second thing to notice is that people don't, who don't believe the Bible, perhaps, or God himself, are nonetheless going to be filled with wisdom and love and joy. That's going to happen as well, regardless of what they may believe. That God is constantly speaking in his creation. Things like the world is valuable, people are valuable, that, that there's meaning here, there's purpose here, there's a design here. And everyone's getting that information on some level. Some suppress it more than others. But it's why we come across people who don't believe any of the stuff we believe and yet are filled with wisdom and goodness and caring and love for others. We will see Jesus teach parables where it's like, look, the rain falls on the righteous and the unrighteous. Like, there's a grace that is given to all, and I think in creation we see that. And why would God endow wisdom and goodness on people who don't believe in him? Because he's a good God and desires to give gifts to all. And secondarily, imagine if we lived in a world where only a certain set of people were the only ones who were ever given wisdom. It would be a disastrous world that we would have to navigate. But he gives common grace to all. Now, the beauty is the psalm does not end in verse 6. The psalmist certainly knows that nature is not going to be enough. It doesn't give us all that we really need. And as great as nonverbal communication is, it, it's mixed and unclear. Now, we could still do nonverbal communication pretty well. Like, for, for many years in this church, my, my wife knew how to give me nonverbal communication to say, wrap it up. Because that's, that's, I probably needed that in most sermons, either because I had said enough or because it had gone so bad that I needed to wrap it up. And we could do that non-verbally. 
But I, I can't non-verbally say, meet me on the corner of Memorial and Columbia at eight o'clock tonight. But I, there's, no, there's no head nod to accomplish that goal. And before the objectors come along, sign language is just manipulating words with hands. So, so does nature tell us things about God? Yes, absolutely, right? Are there mixed messages if we were to only look at nature about who God is? Yes, right? When tornadoes and earthquakes come along and things are not always beautiful in our world, do we have to parse that out? We have to think about that. Does God have to speak into those things? We need more than just the natural world, which is why we have the spoken word of God. God reveals more than just a remote, I created and I can stand back. He's not a deist. We don't don't believe in deism, but that he has actually entered into this world to reveal himself as well. The law of the Lord is perfect. Reviving the soul, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise is simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure and enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true, the righteous and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter than, also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. And so we get a series of of a bunch of parallel lines right from the get-go. And we get these words. We get the Torah, the law of the Lord, the eduth, the testimony of the Lord, the peku, the precepts of the Lord, the mitzvah, the commandments of the Lord. And all these words consistently throughout the Old Testament are words to describe, really, God's revealed word, the Torah, um, the prophets, things like that. They're, they're constantly identifications for scripture, synonyms, synonyms, not cinnamon, synonyms for scripture. And we learn, at least from the reflection here, about the, the, the wholeness of scripture, the, the completeness of scripture. That's perfect, perfect, it's sure, it's right, it's pure. Those are the English words we have. That the law is tamim, which it gets sometimes described as perfect, though I don't always love that word, especially in the Old Testament. But this idea of whole or complete, or sometimes used of animals that are undefiled, it's, it's, there's, a, there's a completeness to it. It is all that it needs to be. The imam, the, the sureness of it, that's trustworthy, that's faithful, that what it says is, is true. It's yashar, it is right. Um, this word was often used for um, like a straight edge. Like if you were to build something, you would want uh, the, the lines to be straight and, and right. Then you can either eyeball it and just try your best, or you had a device that would actually help you make sure that things were straight and good and right. And so um, that's what the word of God is. It is the things that we should be basing outside of us, what is true and straight and right. That's why we don't judge whether scripture is true or right from other standards. We judge other things from scripture standards. It's the straight edge. And lastly, it is bar, it is pure. It's clean, it is the choice of all things. The best of the best is really uh, the way the psalmist is speaking about it. And we learn from these scriptures, right? In all those four categories, it still always includes these descriptors of the things we get out of it. Like first, it revives the soul. There's something about our soul that needs revival. Derek Kidner, um, who's a great commentator, was commenting on this. And he says, um, uh, the phrase of scripture um, is really about having the power to show you who you actually are. That's the, 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 to, ref- to revive, to, to bring us back, to bring back to life what is true about us, to return our soul. Because we aren't 
always alert or always aware of who we actually are. We believe all sorts of lies about who we are, about what we are, and scripture has a way to sort of wake us up to who we were really meant to be and to do. Um, there's a great, uh, I love, my kids are reading through some of the Chronicles of Narnia, which is wonderful. Um, and in the silver chair, it's a wonderful story that, that C.S. Lewis wrote, and it's about this prince who um, ultimately forgot kind of who he was. He's under this evil spell. He can't remember who he is. And every night, um, there's this moment where he can start kind of coming back to his senses, unless he's put in the silver chair, and he has to sit in this chair every night to, to suppress any knowledge of who he actually is. And one night, he ultimately gets out uh, and he destroys the chair right away. And he comes back to his senses to realize who he is, that he's the prince. And I think that's this concept here. That the author is sort of saying that scripture is like the sword that can actually destroy the illusions, the distortions of what is actually true of us. To, to actually know who we are in our souls. Only the scripture can do that. Only the scripture can look at us and go, you know what? You are more flawed and broken as an individual than you can dare to imagine. And you are more loved and cared for and brought back into the kingdom and the family of God than you can possibly picture. And scripture does that. It's walking that line all the time of going, yeah, sin and pollution, all that's going on all the time. But God has done a tremendous work and brought you back in. That's why Paul opens his letters often being like, you are the saints. I just need you guys to know that you are the saints now. Yes, you were once these things, but man, I need you to know your true identity. And scripture can do that time and time again. And then it makes wise the simple. And I love this. Um, I often say what maturity actually looks like is coming to the point where you start realizing that like the 10 year ago version of yourself um, was, was kind of an idiot, right? Right? The things that you didn't know, the thing, like you were a fool. You were a jerk probably. There's so little about you knew about your own heart. There's so little that you knew about how life works. But the implication then, this is where I think maturity comes in, is that your current version of yourself, 10 years from now, you're going to look back on and be like, they didn't, I didn't know what I was, I, I was thinking. I was still a jerk. I was still a fool. I still didn't know everything that I know now. And humility is kind of coming to terms with that. <laughs> and, and maturity is coming to terms with that. Like, you're a jerk now. You're a fool now. It's okay. 10 years from now, you're going to come to realize this. And so just, just own it now. You're, you're a simpleton now. And I think this has continued in this idea, even the enlightening of the eyes and some of those phrases. As one translation puts it, the, the giving insight for life, that there's, there's actually wisdom to be found in this book of thousands of years of putting together God's advice, people reflecting like the, in the Proverbs and stuff like that, what life is true and right, all that sort of stuff, being inspired by God and reflecting on life, of what is true and wise. Even, even the psalmist will say, the fear of the Lord is clean, the rules of the Lord are true. Or translated elsewhere, the commands to, to fear the Lord are rights, and the judgments given by the Lord are trustworthy. And it is good and right to heed life's warnings of what is wise and what is foolish, what is good and what is evil, and what is flourishing, what is destruction. And this word helps us do this. 
to, to be in his word is to encounter wisdom. And what can we do about it? Well, we take heed. That's what verse 11 says. For them, by them is your servant warned. We're given wisdom and warning. And most of us in like our 20s and in, in our foolish days would have been like, I wish someone would have come along and helped give me some wisdom. Well, that's what the psalmist is saying. This book provides some of that, some of this wisdom, some of this ability to, to take us in our foolish states and to help bring us to wisdom. Because every person wants that. Every person wants to live an enjoyable, meaningful, rewarding life. And that desire drives us down all sorts of paths, whether it's paths of career or paths of relationships or certain interests. We, we all want that, this meaningful life. And some of those aren't bad paths, but they don't always take us to where life wants to lead us. And each time we think that something might finally pay off and it doesn't. And there's wisdoms yet through this whole journey to be found in God's word to help correct, to make wise the simple. And before you think that, um, I'm gonna go off script here. Uh, before you think that, uh, I think sometimes people encounter these, these commands and then encounter modern identity and, and go, yeah, but that advice feels primitive or ancient or something like that. The difficulty there is that every society, every culture has a different set of what it defines as like what is good and right. And those things change all the time. So if you are in a heavily, um, like, fam like the survival of, of the collective is determined by families being very cohesive. So those cultures exist. Then any sort of intimacy outside of marriage is a threat to the security and safety of the community. And we would look at that and be like, those commands are old and... Um, primitive and, and stuff like that, when this whole other culture would be like, no, like, that, is, that is the basis of our culture built upon. Or if you're in a culture that, like for us, we love mercy, we love forgiveness, we love those concepts. But if you're in a culture where like, there are terrorists killing family members, and then Jesus comes along and says, love your enemy, that is a, that is a threat to them. That is something that they're like, no, that's not what I want to hear. And we would celebrate that all day long. And so all of that's just determined on the cultural norms that you are based upon. So as much as we think we are being independent free thinkers, we are just the product of individual enlightenment from the European philosophy, and we just kind of function that way. So no matter what, we're always listening to outside advice to tell us what is true and what is right and what is good, what is foolish and what is smart. We're always listening to those sort of things. So do we, and, and, and hear me, your great grandparents believed a bunch of stuff that you today would be like, that was ridiculous, right? It's just true. So we're gonna have generations come after us, they're gonna look at stuff we believe today and be like, they were ridiculous. Because it changes, it's, it's just how culture works. So at some point, we're gonna go, okay, where do we get wisdom then? Do we just believe what the culture's kind of changing and teaching us at this moment, just mindlessly? Do we look to thousands of years of teaching and that has been tested for time? What do, what do we do? And I think the psalmist is like, look, if you really wanna find wisdom in this world, God provides some of this. Anyway, sorry, that's my diatribe. Uh, and lastly, it delights the heart. Uh, it says rejoicing the heart. Uh, and it goes on to more to be desired than any gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Now remember, at this point, I mean, they, they have the Torah. They might have a few of the other books, but they don't have a, a lot. 
uh, of what we would consider the Old Testament, at least fully written in form, that all would have the access to. And so it's a lot of commands. It's like the book of Leviticus. It's like stuff like that. There's just some weight to that, which is why C.S. Lewis actually reflects on this. He says, I can well understand this being said of God's mercies or promises, but the poet is talking about God's law. This is very mysterious to me. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not commit adultery. I can understand a man must and should respect those statutes and obey them, but it is impossible for me to see how they could be delicious, how they could exhilarate. And he goes on, he says, this is the language of a man ravished by beauty, that he looks into the law of God with all of its demands and sees absolute beauty. If he cannot find a way to share his experience, he shall all, well, we shall all be the losers. And, and so this man is looking at God, providing a, an instruction, a, a guidance to the way that life can bring flourishing to an individual. And yet um, he, he sees in that just the struggle that we have, because we hear commands and we, we buck against that. We're like, ah, we, we feel coerced into obeying God. And I would say the psalmist reads it. It's like, no, this is sweetness. This is wisdom. This is life. In these things is life. And they're like honey. They're like something I just want to enjoy. And lastly, there's the searching word of God. Because the psalmist will go on in verse 12. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous or willful sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. So he asks, who can discern errors? Like who, about themselves is really the question here. And it's rhetorical. The answer is no, no one, no one, especially hidden errors. There's hidden faults. There's, there are things we can discern that we could find on the surface, but, but there's all sorts of hidden stuff as well. And the psalmist is recognizing this. And he says, look, keep me from the hidden things because that's the best I can hope for. Like the overt willful sins. If I can be obedient against those very overt willful sins that I know I commit, if I can avoid those, oh, I'd be innocent of great transgression. But there's also stuff I can't see. I can't overcome. They're hidden from me. There's sins in my heart. And God, I need you to declare me innocent of those things. I can't see them. Maybe it's pride or self-justification or divisiveness or greed or resentment or prejudice or unkindness, whatever it may be. The things that maybe others often see in us, but we fail to see in ourselves. Other people may have pointed them out, but we don't see them. And they're often the things that hurt us the most. The things we justify It's not because they are small, but because they're just so characteristic of us. And not only are we not able to overcome it, we can't even see it. And yet the psalmist ends with this, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Which feels a bit odd. Because he's just said... It's not only impossible to overcome the sins, but like I can't even see. There's hidden sins in my heart that I can't even see. Like I can only have you declare me innocent of those things. Oh, but may the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. And David has confidence that God is able to do this. Yes, I can't see all the sins in my heart. God, the meditations of my heart can be acceptable to you. And I think it's because of this thing at the end here that he will say. 
because he will say, God, you are my rock and my redeemer. Like the ability for him to say, I could delight in law and, and delight in the Lord is because the kind of Lord that I've seen you to be, you are a redeemer. God, I know you took your people out of Egypt. I know you can redeem your people from being lost. I've seen you do that time and time again, God, and I am one of your children, and I know you can redeem me. I know you're a good father. You're steadfast and sure. You offer mercy to a thousand generations. Doesn't mean you don't offer sometimes punishment for three to four generations but mercy to a thousand, God. I know the kind of character you got. I know you're a redeemer. You are a rock. And it is there I can declare that there's hidden sin in me, yet the meditations of my heart can still be acceptable. So why is the law so sweet and good for the author here? Why? Because he knows from who it comes from, the one who is redeemed. And that's always the order. I want to be cautious that we ever step outside that, right? Like, Israel was redeemed by the Lord, brought out of Egypt, and called and declared a people, and then all the laws were given to them, right? The redemption happened first. And so the same, I think, would be true of the Psalms. He knows the character of God, and therefore he can celebrate the laws of God. And when we realize what God has done for us, what he has taken us from and made us to be, then our hearts can gravitate towards what would delight him? God has done such a tremendous work for me. What would make him happy? I want to do that. It's like how marriages work, right? When your spouse loves you so well, then you want to go, well, what would make my spouse happy? I want to do that. Even if it costs me something, I want to love them well. And the wonderful thing is that God tells us, here's the things that would make me, that would delight me to see in my people. And that's what's wonderfully sweet to the psalmist. And the gospel does the same. We receive the good news that Christ on the cross dealt with our sin. And simply by faith in him, we are new creations. We are forgiven. We are adopted as sons and daughters. We are deeply loved by the Father, by, by the God of the universe. We are empowered by his spirit. We have purpose for our lives. We have a family of brothers and sisters. We have a good father who takes care of us. We are not defined by our weakest and worst moments. And that sin and death are not the final answer to this life, but eternal life with God. We know all of those things. So now, <laughs> now we can look at the commands of Jesus and go, yeah, those things are sweet. When, when Jesus tells us to love our enemies, when Jesus tells us to give, when Jesus tells us uh, uh, to take up our cross, we can look at those things and go, you know what, those are sweet things because I know what my Jesus has done for me. And since Christ has accomplished those things on our behalf, it should inspire us to go, Jesus, what delights you? I want to do those things. His commands, his instructions, his desires for his people. And that we would be disciples then. And as Jesus says, you are my disciples if you obey my commandments, if you live this out. So I want to ask just a few sort of reflection questions to kind of wrap up, and then a couple practicals. The first is that, is our view of God worthy of who the heavens say he is? Are we able, almost like Einstein, to look and go, wow, the heavens are majestic. And to also look at our God and go, wow, our God is majestic. The next is, do we treasure God's word? Is it sweetness? 
do we go, you know what, I want dessert today. <laughs> because guess what, my kids want dessert every day. <laughs> and to be real, I want dessert every day. And to come to this book and be like, that sounds awesome, I want that. I want an ice cream sundae every day and to open this book and be like, this, this is sweetness to me and to my soul. And lastly, what sin is keeping you from experiencing the joy of a relationship with God? What might be the hidden things that you're just like, God, I, 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 need, you to, I need you to declare me innocent of these things. I, I know you have on the cross, God, and, and, and I want those things to be gone. I just want all the meditations on my mouth. I want all the words, or all the words that come out of my mouth. I want all the meditations to just be good and right and acceptable. Everything that is good, I want to I think about those things. So here's a couple practicals. Number one, get outside, right? Go, go outside. It's hard to, to, to read these words and to be like, and I can experience that from my desktop background or my cubicle or whatever. Like, to go out in nature and to just sit there and, and take it all in. Now, that could be a park locally and listening to birds and looking at the sun who's like a bridegroom coming out of their chamber. It could be going to north toward the mountains. It could be, who, who knows? Going to the lake. But to get outside and to, and to go, you know what? This is, the be- this is God's artwork declaring things to me. Next is to, to read, to, to pick up your Bibles, to, to actually get into God's word, to spend time doing that, to value and prioritize time in scripture and reading and studying and meditating on the teachings and applying the principles. And do this in community. Ask questions. Struggle with the text. It's wonderful to do that. Find a few friends that you just don't mind asking weird questions about the Bible and to work through. It's wonderful. And lastly, to be transformed by this. (laughs) To seek personal transformation through the word. To approach the study of God's word with humility and willingness to actually be transformed. As if you're opening and go, I'm I'm a fool. This is wisdom and I'm going to read it as such. And let it shape our thoughts and attitudes and actions and imagination. We can experience personal growth and a deepening of relationship. 